0: Hello and welcome to the very 98th podcast of the Shut Up and Sit Down podcast. The podcast all about board games, people who love board games, and the board games that love them. My is Matt Lees, joined as ever by Quentin Smith. Hello, Matt Lees. And we've got a treat for you today, because we're going to be talking about some board games. It's a revolutionary new idea that's taking the internet by storm. Uh, The board games we're going to be talking about today are The Taverns of Tiefenthal, a tavern simulator from the designer of Quacks of Quedlinburg. We're going to be talking about Stefan Feld's Carpe Diem, a game about Romans trying to put their houses in the right place and failing. We're going to talk about Luxor, a game of... Egyptologists going around a pyramid and swearing. We're going to be talking about Silk. Uh, Matt, how would you describe Silk? It's just bizarre, hellish pastily game of eating your friends' worms in a world that doesn't quite make sense. Lovely stuff. I'm going to be talking about Rail Pass, a cooperative, real-time game about passing actual physical trains with actual cubes on to your friends without the cubes falling off, because then that counts as lost cargo. <laughs> Look forward to that. Gosh. Uh, it, it's even more that's, ridiculous and fun than i exactly how trains work in real life. Yeah, Don't oh, drop the train, Kenneth! This whole podcast is just going to be me like rushing through everything to get to talking about <laughs> rail pass because uh, it's a heck of a thing. We're going to be talking as well a little bit about some of our reviews that have just gone up, Crocodile Pipeline and soon to be Too Many Bones. Mm. And then we've got a reader question in which Stefan from Germany is going to ask if you could play any board game with a director commentary from the designer, what would it be and why? Let's come oh, oh! back to that one later. Uh, for the people at home, Matt's just lit up at how good that question was. Great question. Uh, well, should we get this pod ball rolling mm-hmm. by talking a little bit about Taverns of Tiefenthal? Taverns of Tiefenthal, uh, following on from Cracks of and it will follow on in the fact that I already have forgotten what the name of the place is, so we're just going to call it Taverns. Yeah, uh, no, I think that's a that's a relatable experience that a lot of people will yeah, go through. yeah, yeah. I've had a fantastic time with this but I I think to begin with what I'll say is I found it really interesting the fact that this is another game by Wolfgang Warsch who is somebody who as a designer I've become so enamoured with their work that I've played a lot of it Mm. in a way that I haven't really ever done before with a designer of just being like, I'm going to play everything this person is doing yeah. and check it all out. which is interesting with Wolfgang because it's quite a broad church, yes, right? We have the, the push-your-luck game, Quacks of Quedlinburg. We have uh, The Mind, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, which is a party game. We have the the very mathematical Roland Wright game, uh, Pretty Darn da- Clever. Yeah, Pretty Darn Clever. And, and then, then, oh, soon to be... Um, Oh, uh, Wavelength. Wavelength, yes. Uh, And other games that we've temporarily forgotten. But yeah, so now this is interesting, right? Because you were saying you could, you'd now, this was a designer you'd become so familiar with. We sat down to play Taverns, which is a tremendously uh, inventive game. And you could see his work in it. Yeah, you really can. Like, that's what's so fascinating is you just look at it and you go, oh, I can see the design processes that led you here. Because it feels very much like a cross between uh, Quacks of Quedlinburg and... Uh, Ganshon Clever. It feels like there's there's elements of both of these games there, and you sort of realise you, as you're playing it, you're like, oh, you've kind of just taken the core premise of Quacks and then made it a little bit less random, a little bit less luck-based, and a lot more bitty bitty and gritty and and a lot more like gamey yeah so where quacks was just a light simple game of putting ingredients in a potion and hoping it doesn't explode uh taverns has you running a pub everyone gets their own pub and you have just like quacks something like eight or nine days in order to amass the most victory points which in this game are mostly going to be coming from uh royal patrons so Mm. to begin with and this is lovely uh your pub which is a big sort of An interesting cardboard jigsaw. And we're Mm -hmm. we're seeing more of this these days with punchboard cardboard that jigsaws together in a way that we haven't seen much in previous years. And you were saying, and I love this idea, maybe it's because the cutting technology has gotten better. Yeah, I mean, it could just be that people have the, the flow down in terms of their communication with China and the production of being able to ensure that when you get that cardboard punched out, it's going to be right. Because it used to be, do you remember like, we had years and years of coins in games that would just be like really off. Yeah, yeah. A you circle, know, like, within a circle that was just like... Yeah, you think yeah, not they, they weren't even close there with, with punching that out of the board. But um, this requires, because it's it's a modular jigsaw thing that has your bar with all the different parts of the bar some of which are on the edge and some of which are in in the middle of it or inside of it Mm. are little bits you can pop out and flip over to upgrade yes so if you make a fair bit of money then there's a little sleepy dog in the corner of everyone's bar you can pay and then flip that dog over and it becomes a waitress because you've kicked the dog out and now you've got another employee Or uh, what else have we got? You have... uh, You could turn your little wooden chest that held your money in into a cash register. Oh, yeah. Which is all the more efficient. You could upgrade more tables. That bit in the back room, which was just empty stone, you can flip it and it becomes a dishwasher. Uh Uh, So what all of these different uh, employees do every turn is... And this is this is interesting because okay, you've got this flipping jigsaw thing. That's just like a fraction of the game. Yes. You also have a deck which represents uh, not just your personal bar's regular customers, but also your staff. So a day begins with you seeing who has shown up that night, mm-hmm. and so you deal cards off your personal deck, so you oh, it's a customer, they go to the table, mm-hmm. oh, it's another customer, they go to a table, oh, thank God, it's the waitress, I really needed them to show up tonight, because the waitress will let you roll more dice later, and you keep drawing from your deck until all of your tables are full. Mm-hmm. I hope you bought enough tables, Matthew. Yeah, well, that's the thing, and, and it's funny, because you can then be adding to your deck. So in a way, if you've played Quacks of Quedlinburg, a game where you have a bag, you pull things out of a bag, you swear, because the things you pulled out with the wrong things but then you can buy more things to put into your bag to make it better theoretically theoretically but in this you're drawing from a deck of cards so there's always going to be an air of randomness but at the same time there's also an air of 100 predictability and when yeah. you buy new things from the shop and they might be special patrons who are going to come in and be more useful to you or maybe additional tables so you can keep drawing from your cards more frequently more often or you know upgrades for your bar they will go straight onto the top of your deck so it means you know that you might never see them again oh, after yes. that, but you know that next round you're going to get that stuff, which yep. is a really a massive change from Quacks, really. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's funny because you can see so much of the DNA of Quacks of Quedlinburg, but also it's a it, uh, tonally it's such a different game. I, within that deck that we were just talking about, I loved how... On one day, you might earn enough money or or beer that you attract a really good customer. Oh, Mm -hmm. Matt, they're gonna show up. If you can make sure they get served, they're gonna pay so much money. And also, these are these are pictures of people, you know? So to begin with, you've just got a couple of old people who are like eating like a bowl of soup, which pays nothing. But eventually, if you play well, then you're going to get customers like, oh, the woodcutter, and oh, the merchant, and then your bar has all these wealthy people who show up, and you go, oh, it's great to see you again! Cause... Or the shady-looking guy with the big scar who just gets rid of other customers. Oh, I love that, He's yeah. Brilliant. A really beefy man who, when he enters your deck, um, you can remove anyone else. So it's the idea that... Yeah, that guy's drinking here, which means some of your older, more infirm, elderly customers (laughs) just don't show up at your bar anymore. They don't want to come, and that's great. (laughs) Yeah, it's really good because they got no money. They didn't tip. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So uh, it's a fascinating thing of of basically push your luck again, of drawing, and sometimes having these wonderful rounds where you just keep drawing out the little dwarf chaps that have uh, help you pull beer into your cellar and then the dishwasher and then your waitresses turn up and all of these things basically all of the upgrades allow you to do do things with dice and that's where we get into the bit that's <laughs> we haven't even bit. mentioned yeah. the dice yeah, yet. yeah exactly but, that this is where it becomes a bit ganshan clevery is because once you've drawn all these cards and that's your bar for the night you then roll a bunch of dice <laughs> put them on these very cool beer mats which basically are your kind of like dice mats yeah and then You choose a dice and then you draft dice. And all of the different players' sets of dice on these little coasters uh, get shuffled around clockwise as everyone just takes one and then shuffles around in a circle until everyone has four dice. Yes, and this is where uh the sort of management of your bar comes in because that deck card flipping mechanic that we just described, believe it or not, is not the game No, no no no, ju- no, no. <laughs> no, 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 no No, 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 of course not That just creates your pub uh-huh. and then it's when you get dice, like because everyone's going to get four dice, and this is what waitresses do they give you additional dice of your own colour that you can roll and then you play something like a dice placement slash worker placement game if you've played that before. So, those nice customers I was describing before, the woodsman who just is an amazing tipper he needs you to place a four on him if mm-hmm. he's going to cough up the cash. If you, You've got tons of beer, guys, but they're only going to pour beer into your cellar. Like I made that sound weird, like he's just upending a swimming pool of beer into your... Sounds great. ...undermining your flat, your house. What am I talking about? The point is that if you don't have the dice, you can't actually activate all no. these valuable areas of your park. No, and that's it. So you, you're basically trying to then build a deck that then can react properly to the distribution of dice rolls particularly as it's things like ones and sixes are always great for making beer and they're not like superb for making beer but you can always work with ones and sixes yes but then like anything in between is a range of things that you can do all sorts of different things with some of which are arguably better than others but if you have like four customers in your deck that all require a three on a dice that's a gamble (laughs) (laughs) because you're relying on not just that you want to have you know lots of threes but the other people don't and it's funny i think it's safe to say that this game we found fascinating yeah um, but i'm not sure how much we really loved it I, I really want to play it again it left me very much wanting to play it again and i feel like an element that in the first time we played it we didn't really grok was the f- how reliant you're going to be on what other people are making in their things in terms of like if you see somebody buy a person that requires a three. Yes. Then you might not want to, you know, depending, oh, I see because what you it's mean, always yeah. going clockwise. You you have that thing that you have in container, so to say. Of like it's not as much of that, but knowing what the person before you particularly mm. is doing is uh, going to be quite important. Do we not draft? I feel like we might have drafted the other way at like halfway through. Like it does the reverse. I actually, I don't recall. I don't I don't remember, but I, I prefer that it, if it was what you say, because then I only have to watch one person's pub. Yeah. The person clockwise from me or whatever. Yeah. But it just means there's there was definitely a point for being like, because if other people don't need fours, then you're just going to be able to have loads of them. Yeah. Like, because no one's going to take them. Whereas, because the thing is that when you start the game, threes and fours are just useless pretty much. Like mm. I, I think, I can't remember if those are the numbers, but... No, I think that's about right. As you go on, they can become valuable to some players and not others. So it's it was an, a really interesting thing. And as you say, there's so many games within games. You kind of have this slight obfuscation of your deck and it being partially shuffled, but partially reliable. And then you have the flipboards and then you have all of the different things that can come out you know he's such an inventive designer but with and ordinarily when I play Wolfgang Walsh games I I get really excited because he gives me an idea and he executes really well not saying Taverns of Cheventhot isn't that but for me it felt like he's got so many ideas in here lots of which from his other games but that lent the game to me an element of like a Rube Goldberg Rube Goldberg machine, where like you know, oh, pull the stick to lower the weight to hit the yeah. duck. The duck will scare the dog. To because you've got you know cars that like, and the cars don't even do anything. They just manipulate how you use the dice. The dice you may or may not have because of X Y Z. The upgrades that you buy may or may not be useful. Like it's it was very 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 interesting. Yeah, um, and there was some interesting stuff with. Because the game had a bunch of different modules with it for yes, it comes it comes with five mini expansions. But um, I, which I thought was really generous when I first heard of the game, um, oh, five little expansions at the box, great. Once we played it, I think I realised that's it's <laughs> it's more like it's just got so many ideas that it wants to gate off those <laughs> ideas because yeah. you'll naturally play the beginner game first. But that has so much going on that you really want to know that before you introduce jesters, schnapps, the guest book, like all yeah. these other things. That and it seemed can... like schnapps were basically the same. There, there was no there was another mechanic which involved move was it the monks that saw you moving around the monk board and unlocking monk bonuses yes which was basically exactly the same idea as the droplet the droplet moving around and quacks to get unlock things yeah it's really interesting it's one of those things that kind of uh, shifts me into an unhelpful nerd zone of going i wonder what the order of this was i wonder if he'd made a game like quacks and then thought let's try and make something a bit more like gamery with the same ideas or whether he was working on this and then decided to just run off and do the quacks thing using just one idea from this game because it was not coming together i think that the problem we had is we felt that when we were playing it that we couldn't really see why you wouldn't want to just get loads of tables in the bar and it's one of those things where you need to play the game more to get a sense for it but yeah no i agree um it's just i just to end on a positive because i yeah. think we we do oh no i really liked it i, I did play really it like it as well yeah i think it's just it's extremely rare that we're not lost for words, but we played this at Zommerspelle, a Belgian convention who took wonderful care of us. If you ever get the chance to go to Zommerspelle, mm. goodness, go. But um, we got back to the hotel room that night and we were just still thinking, still talking about it, going, but how, like, you know, and it's rare that we're sort of knocked for six like that. Yeah, I think I was really excited to play more of it. I think I just want to see how how well it holds up to repeat Yeah, hammering. No, very excited. Uh, so that was Taverns of Tiefenthal. Uh, of course, if you don't know how to spell any of these games, you'll always find them in the podcast description, but move, let's move on to something a little simpler. Mm-hmm. Let's move on to Stefan Feld's Carpe Diem, <laughs> AKA. So <laughs> before we get into, uh, my performance, shall we say, uh, of, <laughs> of Carpe Diem, um, this is a Steffenfeld game. Uh, Steffenfeld produces a lot of sort of resource management, conflict-free, uh, what are called Euro games by the industry. Um, we haven't played a lot of them because, my goodness, there are there are so many, and they're not always described as great. Um, the shut-up-and-sit-down review of a Steffenfeld game you might have seen is uh, Castles of Burgundy, which we mm-hmm. love. Really looking forward to the new edition of that coming out later. And Trajan, which is interesting, but we didn't love as much as some of the sort of uh, more classic board gamers who are alive in the... Alive in the 90s alive. and nineties, and of course, now all tragically killed <laughs> in, in, the- in the Eurobus. Accident. I was going to say the Essen Quake of, of <laughs> two thousand three. Well, of course, the Essen Quake did cause the Eurobus to go off that <laughs> ravine. Uh, so, uh, but we—I was looking forward to play Carpe Diem because I believe it's nominated for the uh, yeah. Kennespiel years, uh, the big uh, German Critics Prize of the year, or con- no, the Connoisseur's Prize. When you build in fields of Rome. So, yeah. Do you want to describe? Uh, oh gosh. A, I can, I can have a crack. no, no. It's so this is a game of building. Your little villa within ancient Rome, mm. and you do that by uh, zigging around a pentagram of property deals um, with your little meeple, and it's just taking it in turns to move uh, to one of two locations you can go to from where you currently are on this on this strange. Uh, it's like a six-pointed star. Six star, but yeah, it, yeah. I think it's a it's a bad. I don't know, but anyway, you you can go left or right basically, and then you you go off and you go. Oh, I'm going to have this building, and some of the buildings are just things that you pop on the board and you immediately get a bonus, and it has that classic thing that you have on tile placement games of you can only build out from continuously, you can only build out based on things you've already built yeah so you've got this sort of what eight by eight grid maybe something like that maybe more I don't remember but when you cover up things you're gonna get bonuses and so it's good to cover up stuff but at the same time some things you buy and you just place and it has an immediate effect and it does something other things are kind of buildings in progress that you have to either combine two of the same or maybe more to make a bigger thing and then when you finish it you get a bonus but the thing, that, <laughs> and the thing that's brutal about this is your board is also surrounded with this modular clip-on edge, mm. which is really nice because it actually does something that a lot of these tar lane games don't do, in the fact that it actually gives you a sense of space within where you're building. It gives you a little bit of greenery around the edge of your plot to make you feel like it's not just like, this is the edge of the universe, but being like, no, this is, this is the edge this of the place the, where This is I the I land live. you have to work with. But within this, it has some scoring lines. It's like mad uh bonus point ley lines of being like okay well if you can if you can get like a golden house to be cut in half by this line for every golden house this line does a house being like a a one of the types bakery or a bank yeah we'll come back to theming later uh (laughs) to be brutal or a gray one and then it will get this many points but then there's quite a lot of them around the edge of the board so you really have this very interesting conceptual puzzle of being like how many green buildings can I get in a line on this bit so I get most points there whilst also adhering to the rule of orange buildings going the other way here uh, Yeah vert- the people at home can't see that Matt is doing a lot of sort of horizontal uh, voging with his hands yeah. right now yeah It's it becomes yeah it's it, I think basically and we might as well get to theming now because really it's not, it's the least ancient Romey thing in the world. And actually it looks like you could just be building sheds in like Norfolk or something. I mean, I like, mean you you could be building sheds in Norfolk with changing almost none of the art assets. Yeah, exactly. That's, that's what I mean. Like without changing any assets, it could be anything. But, you know, it, it's its its all more like you're an architect and you're trying to build a village, but you're trying to build a village and actually you worship like demons and you're trying to build a village in a way that's going to please some oh, sort yeah. of underground like, you know, bi- properly lo- aligned with burial grounds is going to cause the worst problems. It reminds me of being the architect of someone like, uh, you know, Nero, who's just crazy. It's like, the, you know, the vineyards <laughs> have to be here! Yeah, that, that makes more sense. And you're thinking, why? Yeah. You know what? Don't ask, don't ask. Doesn't matter, just, yeah. doesn't matter. It's not even like, put all of these buildings here. It's such a specific, strange system, but it's a lot of fun. Yes, so um, immediately, it's a it's a comparatively very simple game, for especially for a Feld. You just take a piece, you put it down, that's your turn. If you finished a building, then you get the bonus, whether that might be like a grape or a bread. The thing that threw me, I mean, I was being thrown left and right. I was like, you know, a heel in a wrestling match just being catapulted around by this game because I was very tired. I want to describe my performance as like a cry for help. Um, It was awful. Still had a great time, that's the important thing. Um, But one of the things that really threw me is you have all these objective cards um, that are laid out in a grid to one side of the board. brutal. Absolutely brutal. This is is quite a cool mechanic, as I understood it initially. It's even better than what I thought it was. Whenever you finish a round, um, whoever has the most of these sort of papery scrolls gets to place their token overlapping some of these cards. So, like, I might put it between those two. You might put yours between these two, right? Those are the two objectives you have to fulfill. And you actually have to do this. I yeah. got that part right. So yeah. if you if you put your disc down over a thing that's like, have a fountain, you must have a fountain. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, the points it would give you instead become negative, which is crazy. And you don't have the option about putting this token down. You have to say okay i'm going to have three grapes yeah At the end of each round you have to put a token down in a space which allows you to fulfill at least two maybe three objectives now here's what i missed here's what i missed i missed that you have to fulfill those objectives at like when you put that token down i thought we were claiming objectives that were for the end of the game it's not true so how i and i love this because suddenly now we have a euro game where you're not just trying to complete objectives you're trying to complete objectives like at these like what are they called sort of um the points in a race where you have to get to flag a now and then within another 10 minutes you have to be at flag b yep and that really threw me because I didn't yeah. I didn't realise I had to have fishes ready now. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah. Please don't yeah. break my legs, boss. That's it. You kind of feel like, oh, it's going all right. It's going all right. And then it's like you need something now. And then particularly with going first, I really shafted you a couple of times just because I got slightly more scrolls than you did. So I got to go first. Oh, yeah. I and I was just a bit more flexible. I thought, well, I'm just going to take the spot that you so blatantly need, <laughs> knowing that then you're going to earn four points, but then lose four points. And um, yeah, it's just unbelievably harsh. The person who taught us the game like came over and I think in the first round, we're both like, well, I think I got two points. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Yeah, you can, if you build a bakery, I believe you get like what, like one bread or two bread maybe? There's something else that you can do to get you one bread. And these are buildings that like take multiple turns and a lot of attention to finish, especially if you want to get them cut in half by those ley lines. And if you get four bread, if, if memory serves... I think it was a three bread, bread! you get a mulligan, you get a freebie. You can complete an objective for free, which is like... It's just the idea that you work so hard, you have to dedicatedly collect multiple bakeries, and all that really is, is kicking the can down the road of saying like, yeah, I'll just do all this so I don't have to play the game. Yes. But as a lovely like... But that felt nice in a yeah. way, you know? Yeah, and also you got the fear as you went on of knowing that... because you have these discs that you put on. I realise it's a mulligan and it's not, not the right term for anyone who's in the comments. It's just I like the word mulligan. It's, it's, a, it's a lovely word. It's a lovely word. Uh, but you have a set number of discs and by the end of the game, all of the slots pretty much bar a couple are full of these discs. Oh, you mean for the objective cards? For the objective cards. So the objective cards are set out in this tableau and there are different connections. So there's only, you know, you can get this and this one, this and this one. But on each of like the north, east, south, west edge of them, Mm -hmm. you can place a disc. But it means as the game goes on, not only are you still each round having to fulfill objectives, but the objectives you can fulfill are getting tighter and tighter until it's like, well, I have to get a fountain. And if there's no fountains, then you just think, ah, oh. oh, I got the the best, simplest example of this is your house, because your villa is the only building on the estate that can be, like, of any sides. So the, t- the villa tiles might just... Initially, you start a villa, but then you might get a T-junction and then a corner and a T-junction. So you build this massive, sprawling house, and at the end of the game, the bigger it is, the more points it's worth. Assuming you finish it. Yeah. And so I got... It's this lovely, simple push-your-luck thing of, like, you know, you've got a three-round game. Round one, build the villa. Round two maybe start thinking about finishing the villa and even then going into round three being like i need to find the like the cap that i can slip on the end of my villa to finish it i got the fear because that was like nine victory points yeah that you could just get zero for instead yeah and, and the other the thing that really gets you and becomes very interesting is you start off the game with these six little spaces that you can dot between but not in any way you want you have limited options of where you can move to there's four different tiles on each of them but as soon as two tiles are taken from oh this space... was the two-player game oh in the two-player game which was really satisfyingly chunky mm. i mean in four it wouldn't matter it'd be the same anyway things would just go but even two-player game just like two are gone the rest are gone then so it, just, it meant the decisions you made were so brutal because you'd look at an area and go oh that's amazing that but then you think well no i can only have like one from there and you would end up basically taking moves where you were looking ahead being like, is it possible now for the other player to get to that area before I get there? Mm -hmm. And looking at it. And something really interesting that somebody came over and pointed out to us was that they said, look, this weird little star thing where you can move to the opposite side of the board, either to the left or right, but then you have to keep bouncing around. They said, oh, have you heard about the controversy about this? Because, you know, actually, like it's kind of not real, it does not do anything. Yeah, so this sounded like a joke, right? Because you're playing a game where you slide along these lines and then someone comes up and goes, you know, it's not real. (laughs) And and we, we just couldn't figure out what they were saying. Yeah, until they pointed out that what they meant was it functionally is the same as it being a circle. So really, at any point, you can go either left or right, and one of the directions is the direction you just came from. So with that in mind, the fact that you are zigging and zagging and darting left and right across it... Yes, the fact that you can't go to the spaces to the left and right, but instead have to dash up to the two spaces opposite. Yeah, because of that, they're like... there's, there's Basically, people said they're annoyed because there's no point. Why isn't it just a circle? It's a gimmick that doesn't do anything. And it was really interesting, because I completely disagree with that, because it's functionally the same. Yes. But... The act of playing the game, of, like, darting your eyes back and forth in a weird, like, <laughs> spirograph fashion, trying to be like, how many moves is it going to take me to get over there? Going, bum, 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 bum. Yeah, the... Was so intense and satisfying. When most of the tiles are gone, which, and the rule is, if the tiles are all gone from one of these six spaces, you and you slide to it and then slide to... Another space. Yeah. When most of the tiles are gone, the 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 manual thing you are doing with your hand is like moving a piece on a Ouija board because you go across, yeah. across, 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 across in a sort of... Like you're drawing multiple triangles, like yes. almost like a spirograph. Yeah. And it feels... Unbelievably satisfying. Yeah. Bom bomb, 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 bomb. And so it's really funny how some people would look at it and go, yeah, but it's functioning exactly the same as a game in which you move around left or right in a circle, which lots of games have. So it's not actually anything new. But I find that really fascinating and completely wrong headed because so much of good game design is about taking something that already exists. And framing it differently in a way that feels different. It's like it's like when we talk about how like the card sizes matter. Like yes. are your cards small or big or like oversized. Yeah. It's like no, it doesn't make a difference, but yes, it does. And this is like a mental aesthetics thing. It's, yeah, one hundred percent. It's psychology. But what's really depressing is that um well not really depressing. You know stuff like we're gonna be all right, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no one's dying. But um the. Uh, the publishers have caved under what? under pressure from... I, this is what we were told, I believe. The first edition of Carpe Diem has the cool zigzagging thing that you and I like, whereas with later editions, once it was pointed out, this is the same as moving left or right. Maybe because it's simpler... Um, Later editions of Carpe Diem I believe have been changed so that you just move left and right in a circle Never cave in on your zigzag dreams You heard it here first Shut up and sit down has finally found something Some political view we will stand for And it's (laughs) put the triangles back in (laughs) Triangles 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 triangles, triangles. Put them back in That's Carpe Diem Carpe Diem Seize the triangles Carpe Diem uh hey, we played one more thing uh at spell that we had a lovely time with. And clask. That, uh oh, let's not talk about Clask because it's it can only look weak and frail in the shadow of my crokinole. I don't review. know, man. Crokinole is something, but Clask. Oh boy. I don't want to talk about because you, you beat me at it. <laughs> you were a real bad. So <laughs> whoa. Well let's let's talk about uh Luxor <laughs> okay, sure. and leave clask behind in the, in see the me at, see me after class <laughs> where where it belongs um so luxor is a game about an pyramid okay uh-huh. this is a family game from queen games that has done quite well they've got an expansion on the way mm-hmm. and what you're doing in uh in luxor is you've got a spiraling pyramid so your archaeologists of all the players are going to enter in one corner of the board they're going to go around in a s- sort of square spiral i don't know if there's a word for that in maths there probably is leave a comment. Um, and then eventually you arrive at the middle where all the really big, rich treasure is. Now, to do this on your turn... That's a, a, an archaeological term. Rich treasure. <laughs> the big, rich treasure. The big, rich treasure. That- Holy hell, Dr. Jones, this is some big, rich treasure. It's that line from Indiana Jones. This big, rich treasure belongs in a museum. <laughs> yeah, course, uh, yeah. So players all have a hand of cards, and not one playing piece, but multiple. You have a couple of archaeologists, and even more you'll unlock later, but we'll get to that. Um, On your turn, you're going to play a card from your hand, which has a movement value, and you're going to move one of your archaeologists that many spaces. So Mm. you play a three from your hand, the archaeologist walks three spaces, and whatever they land on, if it's treasure, you grab that treasure. If it's like an extra special movement card, you get that. If you get a key that'll let you unlock the pharaoh's tomb at the end, great. So what you're doing here is you're just collecting fun trinkets and toys every turn. Probably. Now, there's mm. there's two catches here. The yeah. first of which is that often, a lot of the treasure requires not one of your archaeologists, but two or even three of them. Yeah, it's not just big rich, it's massive rich. So, if you have a hand of cards that's like move one, move two, move one, move four, move three, you have to play them in a way that ensures those two archaeologists end up on that space, and also that another player doesn't take that treasure out from under your feet, which mm. can happen. The other problem, and the cool, Matt's going nuts because I haven't described the cool hook yet. Yeah. Um, the cards in your hand cannot be played in any order. He's buried the lead. Uh, the way it works is you can only ever and I've, I'm hoping get this right now, but you have five you have five <laughs> cards in oh, hand, pressure, and you can only play the cards on the left on the right side of it. You can never play the cards in the middle. Yes, that's correct. Yes. So you play either the leftmost or rightmost card in your hand. You can never reorder your cards. No. So you play a card in your turn, which takes you down to four cards, and then the new card that you draw whoop, goes in the, in middle, the middle between uh, the two sets of two cards. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I thought I was getting some of that wrong. Which means, interestingly, because it's always going in the middle and never one side or the other, it means if if there's a card that's like to the right-hand side of the middle and you want to get to it, if you just keep drawing from the left instead, you're never going to get to it. (laughs) You have to eventually at some point... Start using the cards on the left and right if you want to actually get access to one. Wait, that's not true. No, that that's... That, I was worried about maths. That's Hang not on, true. No. If you've got five cards and you play... It, no, I'm wrong. Yeah. I, I can't do maths in my head. No, no, it's weird, right? Because when I was explaining the rules, I had the same fear that, like, this card... Anyway, the point is, it's cool. It is cool. It's, it's really... Like, having to drill down to cards in the middle of your hand is kind of cute. Mm-hmm. It means that... Oh, I've I, I played Herbaceous recently, which is a card game in which you do not hold hands of cards, and it made me realise how much of the joy in card games is just holding cards. Yeah. Luxor taught me that can actually be even elevated if, like... You're holding the you cards You grip them You sort of have to grip them And they're a puzzle That is distinct from the puzzle on the board Yes It was very cool Yeah no really cool Of being like Well I can use this Then this Then this And then this And then being able to land And get special unlockable cards From these piles of better cards That you just get to use once And then they go into the main deck And get shuffled And then everyone can keep getting oh, them Oh yeah that was a cool Which mechanic Which was a cool yeah. spicy mechanic Of being like Yeah I can move five And then like a few turns later Being like Hey Quinns Look what I got <laughs> It's the card you bought and now it's mine. Yeah, for there's a go. you know, overall in Luxor, not only is it that when players get cool movement cards, they eventually get shuffled through the discard pile back to the deck, but also as players take treasure, you replace the treasure that's taken with um new and novel sort of tiles, like a trap door that leads actually deeper into the pyramid Mm. or whatever. But it means there's this nice mechanic where as archaeologists initially run in and start grabbing handfuls of sarcophagi or pots or whatever, Mm -hmm. um, the archaeologists who come in later, um, who sort of show up because they were having breakfast and they arrive late, they end up traversing a different pyramid. Yeah. Because there's now spaces that, like, give you little movement boosts, like you're playing F-Zero. Yeah. Or <laughs> and so they're just like, basically some archaeologist on team turns up late, because as you move through, you unlock new archaeologists who start at the, the entrance again. Mm. And then they, you can either choose, well, do I want to just push ahead with my main team of two people and just get to the centre of the tomb and get the treasure? and Or do I want to try and get everyone together as a team and start lugging away really big, heavy... Artifacts, yes, because there's a uh, there's some fun stuff about when the game ends. Usually, you know, I don't like games that um, allow players to sort of like, I say don't like. That's probably a strong term, but Not it, kind of like where you can end the game. Yeah, when someone's like, oh, I'm just gonna really rush the end of the game, and then I'm fine if that player loses. Yeah, <laughs> but if they often they don't, often they don't. Yeah, but i um, just, I don't know. It had that nice mechanic that you it just, made sense. There was there was always that element of greed of being like, you know, yeah, you could take your time and get all this cool treasure, but really, you're trying to get to the the big. The big special treasure that belongs in a museum, and that, yeah. that made sense. And I did like the way it felt very Indiana Jonesy, in the way that like the hard work you had done would kind of be piggybacked by other people. And it reminded me of that thing of like, oh, we've translated it, and then someone shouts down a hole, "Thank you for the translation. <laughs> we'll see you in Athens, Indiana Jones." And you go, "Ah, oh, blast it!" You know, it's it's slightly weird, isn't it? Because as a game, it's it's almost an abstract. Like, yeah. you're you're moving onto squares, and then trying to get multiple pieces on squares by playing numbers. And yet, you know, I'm not going to say that the exploring a pyramid theme doesn't work really well, you know? Yeah, I liked it a lot. So that was Luxor. Uh, I'm pretty excited to play more, especially with the expansion they just kicked out in January uh, called Luxor, The Mummy's Curse. Which, oh, what does that do? Well, uh, it adds, in the style of all Queen Games expansion, adds like a gajillion small modules that are all a bit, <laughs> all a bit underwhelming. But one of them, module one, is The Mummy. What? It comes with... A mummy. What? Who's going to be walking, I guess. Oh, in fact, I looked this up. It's Who, going to be. Whose mummy? The mummy that lives in the pyramid who's annoyed you're stealing all that stuff. All of her son's stuff? Uh, it, it, this mummy in question could be a male mummy. Hashtag not all mummies. Yeah, that, sure. And so, yeah. Makes you think. It does make me think. So, I've been playing a little game called Silk, and it really is a little game. It comes in a little box and it's very colourful. It has a picture of a man and a picture of something that sort of looks like a dog <laughs> and some gigantic creatures, creepy crawlies that are silkworms. But oh no, what's that on the background on the box? Is it a little monster? Yes, Quinns, it's a little monster. So, Silk I is a game. Say, I didn't say anything. You did. It. I heard. You whispered it. So. It's a game of farming silkworm. So the way this works is you have a little tableau of five by six little uh, cardboard squares and you you get your friends to set them up on the table and then you have to correct them and say, no, actually, there should be gaps between all of them, which is unusual for games like this because you need to leave room for fences, but you also need to leave room for hatcheries. that are going to let you grow new silkworm. I'm pretty excited so far. So the way the game works is you have a bunch of silkworm and you can move them around the board. But obviously, silkworm, they don't move themselves. And especially in this slightly odd fantasy realm in which the silkworm are bloody massive. <laughs> uh, and there's this hierarchy of how things react to other things. So you've got shepherds, for example, can move the dog things. They're kind of dogs, kind of rams. It's a weird fantasy thing. Shepherds can move the dogs. The dogs can move the silkworm and shepherds can move the silkworm as well. Okay. Uh shepherds can jump over fences, but no one else can. Dogs can't get through fences. (laughs) Nothing else can get through fences apart from shepherds. Okay. Then you've got the dogs that obviously like, you know, dogs can chase off things, but they also can stop the monster from moving into that space. (laughs) So the dog cannot chase off the monster, I don't think. Actually, maybe it can. Maybe the dog can chase off. Yeah, the dog can chase off the monster. It, just <laughs> from how you're describing this, I think any of our listeners will forgive you for yeah, getting no, one uh, part of this but, wrong. No, but it's, what's amazing about it really is it's a bizarrely abstract game. Okay. And, but there's a, a couple of elements where you start to scratch off a little bit and you realise it's an abstract game. But other than that, the the theme is so kind of just works so much that it doesn't feel as abstract as it blatantly is okay that's i mean that's really nice it is it's really interesting and the fact that it's like okay well then the monster can chase off the shepherds Mm. and it will also not necessarily eat the silkworm but it will take the silkworm off to its lair which lives on a little board (laughs) and you just pile them up there which means they're not eaten yet but they're it's implied that they are going to be eaten at the end of the game so is this like a, a, a management game? to players, players presumably have their own shepherd? Yep. So everyone has their own shepherd and their own dog. Okay. And then the way it works, basically, and this is where it gets a little bit interesting. It's pretty interesting already, yeah, <laughs> I yeah. dare say. I mean, it's actually, no, it's really interesting. The whole thing is just slightly bizarre. It's an odd game, but I do like it. Um, each game, each turn, you roll two dice and there are six different actions you can do. And depending on what dice you get, those are the actions you can do. So there are six actions, one, six. You get a four and a three. Hey, you can do action number three and action number four. Okay. Two. Except at any point, on your, you know, at the start of your turn, you can then change the numbers on those die, but it costs you one victory point for each point you change. Okay. And one and six loop around. So you can turn a six to a one for a point, or you could turn a four to a six for two points. Okay. So whatever you roll, you can do whatever you want on your turn, but it's a question of whether or not it's worth it. So it becomes this thing of being like, okay, this is what I've rolled. It's either perfect or it's really not ideal. What do I do with it? So rather than being like, well, I could spend six points to just completely change both my die. But it might be that you think, well, no... I can kind of nudge it that one this way and I can kind of do this. That's interesting. If you roll what you don't want, then can you see a way? Actually, this makes sense because I have watched you play this once uh-huh. and it was slow, but that makes sense if it was slow. If players roll dice and go, am I going to do this or what are the other actions I yeah, could take? Yeah, I mean, it was slow the first time we played it, but we played it at con and we are pretty tired. And I've played it a few times since and it's a lot faster, actually. Oh, it does whip around, but it does mean occasionally you have to ask yourself questions of being like, is it worth it? A lot of it comes down to the fact that the way you score the big points in the game, and it's really nice, is you get your silkworm to graze on the, the tiles. And the different types of tiles have different types of values, and you multiply them. It's basically like, how many of your silkworm are on that space times that by the value of the, the, the grass. So do so, players have their own silkworms as well? Yeah. Okay. Everyone has their own silkworm. There can only be three silkworms in each space, which means if someone else puts one of their silkworm on your silkworm space, it's really annoying, because you think <laughs> you want to have three of yours on a space, because then you can munch the grass and if you get on the good grass three worms on the good grass and use the munch action and a thing i like about this game reminds me of when we did the documentary about twilight imperium which you can watch on youtube if you have not seen it it's a lot of fun and the fact that uh, christian t peterson talked about how much he loved the fact that when people play ti they started to kind of act out the roles of the aliens and mm. he said that's for him a real sign that you've done something right with the game design when people are getting into it and making noises and stuff every time i played this people have just just gone, num, 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 num. <laughs> as, they, as they pick up the silkworm and flip over the tile to be like, I've eaten that grass now. So then you get nine points. However, the thing is, maybe you really want to do it this turn, but then it's going to cost you three points to do it. And then you think, well, I'm only going to get six points. Or maybe you're not even going to get a nine pointer. Maybe it's only going to be worth six points. But then if you spend three points so you can do it... Uh, Is it worth three points? You should probably wait till next turn and do it then. But maybe there's a monster nearby and maybe you think, oh, I've got to do it now because somebody's going to eat me with a monster. Because here's the thing. The monster is one of the actions. On a six, you move the monster a space. So everyone controls the monster or no one controls the monster. The first time I played this game, people were moving the monster all the bloody time and it ate up so many worms. (laughs) Second time, it didn't move for like half the game. And then it didn't. It ate a lot of worms. Are players but incentivized to use the monster to eat one another's worms beyond just like taking worms away from a player? Uh, yeah. At the end of the game, you lose a point for every worm in the cave, basically. So uh, if somebody's doing well, then eating their worms is a good idea because partially, you know, they're going to lose points. But also they can't keep shuffling their worms around and eating up all the good grass forever. Mm. However, it gets interesting in the fact that you've got this tight little board. And the way it describes it in the manual is bumping okay so so you bump things so you go all right well the shepherd is going to bump these silkworms so what happens is you move a shepherd into a space with silkworm and then they get bumped and they can get bumped back to where the shepherd just was but You, the bumpy, the bumper, (laughs) it is the bumper, not the bumpy, that decides, gets to decide where things get shuffled. I I love that I get to ask this question, but is bumping mandatory? Yes. Okay. You cannot have things existing in the same space. Oh, really? Okay. Which means things have to bump. And I know what you're thinking. (laughs) You can chain bump, which means... Right. You can have a shepherd, which moves into a space with a dog... And then the dog moves into a space with a monster, and then the monster moves into a space with some silkworm and eats them. So you, you can go boom, 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 boom. What's the interaction between your shepherd and other people's dogs? Cannot. Nothing. The dog is taboo. Oh, actually, no. I, I don't remember exactly. But I remember that you can't move a dog into a space with another dog or a shepherd into another space with a shepherd. There are some rules that you can't do it. And obviously, fences are one of the actions you can build fences. Mm. They change things substantially. Yeah. And, yeah, basically, the way it works is once you've got all of your hatcheries out, you gain the ability to reflip, to unflip, um, tiles that have been munched on by the silkworm. Which means, again... It's a slight element of a memory game here because they gradually all get flipped over to all look the same. And then you kind of just have to remember in your head that tile was the really good one. And then it means that you can then, instead of building new hatcheries, you can flip a tile. So the ideal scenario, right, is you can build a bunch of fences... And then you can have an area which the monster can't get into, no one else's worms can get into, and you can just keep moving your ship around in a circle to circle your worms around and keep refreshing the land and eating the land, and you can get loads and loads of points. It sounds, it sounds. But, inve- oh oh oh! oh. Well, this is the thing: is like it it incentivizes you with this idea of being able to have your own perfect little worm farm. But the board's bloody tiny. <laughs> <laughs> and there's loads of stuff going on and it's messy. And also, this is the point where like, you kind of go, hang on, this is an abstract game. Is the world is circular, right? Okay, Which means you move off the left-hand side or the north or whatever and you just then come back on the other side. Which means basically it's it's a grid but the grid doesn't have edges. Right, you so move around all players are actually as close to each other as... So everyone's as close to each other. But the exception is <laughs> everything moves around the world apart from Silkworm who get I'm doing this with air quotes with my fingers, lost in the mountains. <laughs> <laughs> so basically, if silkworm ever go off the edge, they just go back to the player's supply. But so, why would you, wouldn't that mean you, okay. Because you only get to put a new one on the board like every turn, which means basically getting rid of other people's silkworm by not having them eaten, but getting them lost in the mountains happens Oh, a lot. no! I was just wondering, why would you ever go around the world? Because it would mean... But if you're going around the world to bump a worm into yeah. a mountain... Yeah, exactly. No! Well, that's it. You can just be like, oh, and you get to choose the distribution of it. You just be like, oh, I move into this space, and my silkworm is going to go over here, but yours, oh, no, they got lost in the mountains. <laughs> if people haven't seen this, by the way, uh, it's definitely worth Googling silk, you know, or silk board game, because... Yeah. One of the reasons Matt and I are so enamoured of this is just how nice it looks. Well, this is the thing, and this is, I guess, why I really like it, is the fact that it's this wonderful pastely game um, and it has beautiful little wooden components and it comes in a very small, tidy box. But it's a game that looks so nice. It's a game of beautifully coloured wooden bits and film and, and, yeah, you're going to farm some silkworm and have a nice time, but then you play the game. And it's like... (laughs) oh, I ate your silkworm. Oh, your silkworm got lost in the mountains. Oh dear, how did that happen? Oh no, you fell over. <laughs> and, and then even the manual, like the art is wonderful and the fact that it's like, it's kind of icky because what, you know, in the, in the fiction of this world, the silkworms are massive, but it means that the silkworm hatcheries are massive and you just have this art of like loads of eggs and it's all kind of covered in this slime and, I really, really love the fact that it's this very strange little colourful game which is both cute but also has teeth Yeah. and what I found that I really liked about it was I was playing a game at a little game night that they do in Somerset House where I work on Wednesdays in the bar nearby and I was playing with three other people, two of whom who didn't really play games that often and I basically just got a bunch of boxes out and said, which of these do you want to play? And it was funny, um, we were there with a, a couple of uh, women who don't play a lot of games, mm. and they were like, oh, I want to play that one. Like, they didn't want to play Res Arcana, weirdly. I don't know why, <laughs> I don't know why this <laughs> They did not super... want to enter a realm of witches yeah, and wizards. But there really. are wizards and wizard fighters. <laughs> are you sure you do not want to tame the dragons? And they were like, no, actually, that one looks really nice. I was like, okay. But what was wonderful is, that was the one that people who hadn't played games much thought, oh, that looks fun. Mm. Silkworm farming. But then actually, when we played it, they were the ones who were having the most fun going around just eating all of my worms with the monster. And, like, they didn't win, but they didn't care because they just like, I'm going to eat all your worms. It's so, so <laughs> important to play board games with uh, with non-gamers from time to time just to, like, you know, just for a head check in the hobby and to yeah. remind you, like, how diff- how people who aren't drenched in board games react to themes or react to, you know, s- stuff like... One of the reasons Monopoly is popular is you get to watch people get put in jail. Well, that's it. People and love that. I think you have to remember that. There's, there's often a real... Um, condescending tone when it comes to people who don't play a lot of games, this idea that they just want to play cute, nice, happy, cooperative things. No. And it's not true. But that's the thing is, aesthetic sometimes there is a thing, and you look at something you think, oh, I don't want to play that, that looks really like trad nerdy, but then you think, oh, that looks nice and colourful. But then when you play the colourful game, if it's all about, you know, like we loved, I, well, I particularly loved, um, was it Pie Town? by? Oh, yeah, Renegades. <laughs> Renegades Worker Pie Town. placement pie creation game. And I think that's the sort of thing where if you, Know what you're doing, you might think this is perfect for non gamers. Look, we're all just making pies, but then even in that, actually, it's not a good example because it had the whole thing of I'm gonna steal your pie recipe, (laughs) which is wonderful. But yes, people eavesdropping on like interns in a forest, yeah, that's what it's about. Like, I think sometimes people look at people who aren't big into nerdy scene stuff and they do gravitate to stuff with a softer art style because they just think it might be less like. But then actually, within those games, they do want to do the mean stuff, because the mean stuff is fun. Yeah, I mean, I think this is actually true of a lot of Shut Up and Sit Down's, like, favourite comedy games, is that it just doesn't look quite what it is. So I'm thinking about Suburbia, I'm Uh thinking about Food Chain Magnate, and I'm thinking about, uh, like, I don't know, even Alchemists, the way that a game can have a quaint theme and it actually improves it if there's a sort of secret little mean cutthroat side it's really odd I'm, I'm looking forward to playing more of it i think it's an oddity and i think i enjoy how strange it is and there's some really interesting elements in the fact that like building fences you can build fences quite quickly and it means that all it would take is maybe a couple of players to be like could you fence someone in you can fence the monster in oh <laughs> so so you could, could you fence someone's dog in yeah <laughs> <laughs> like you could. you could fence whatever you want in but it's just the fact that the monster is in the games i've played has been such an overwhelmingly terrifying force but if a couple of people decide they're going to do it you can just make it so the monster just can't do anything for the whole game which is like that's really interesting i mean yeah especially in like a, a 20 minute or 30 minute game or however long it takes yeah it's probably about 45 minutes an hour mm-hmm. so an hour of a monster going <sighs> <laughs> <laughs> but that was silk um, which uh, we might be... I'm going to play some more of it, I think, and it may be one that you see uh, popping up again in the future. Yeah, it's one to show off on camera for sure. Absolutely. Uh, I've played a couple of real-time co-op games, one of which I'm not going to talk about much, uh, and the other of which uh, I'm going to talk about a bunch because I think it's amazing. The one I don't like very much is called Pandemic Rapid Response. And th- so this is a real-time pandemic dice game, uh, not to be confused with all the other pandemic spin-offs that Asmodee are churning out. Like, they're worried that they're going to lose the pandemic license. I don't know what's happening there. They've created the pandemic expanded universe, and no one seems... There is already a pandemic dice game, isn't there? I've played that. Yeah, it's called Pandemic the Cure, I believe. Yeah, that's, that's an- quite fun. I think there's one where you play the disease. Uh, it's-, it's wild, Matthew. You. Uh but rapid people have gone mad rapid response is interesting because let me let me tell me at what point this theme stops making sense for you, okay? <clears throat> in pandemic rapid response, all the players are a crew of a rapid response plane that's gonna right. fly to hotspots around the world and give them things they need, okay? Right. This makes sense? Yeah. So you're gonna be making vaccines. Uh someone's gonna be making vaccines in that room. Uh you might be making um sort of uh what's the word? Like Sandwiches. S- synthesized vaccines. And uh, so vaccines are bandages in another room. Fresh drinking water. Yeah, you're going to be purifying water on the plane. That's a room. There's also a kitchen where... Oh, Matt, you're frowning. <laughs> like, this doesn't seem to make a lot of sense. So... was what, there a kitchen? For making sandwiches? So, Did I get that right? Yes. You can make them sandwiches? You, there's a... It's a bubbling pot of stew as depicted on the board. But the idea is that what do people need? They what? need... They need... Oh, I've, re- I've remembered it now. They need medical supplies, electricity, food and water you are responsible for all four. So it's this mad thing that like, oh, we need to get to South South Africa needs like three food and a battery. And so someone runs to the kitchen and starts rolling dice panically to make stew. This is insane. Here's the thing: Uh, I was playing it with uh, Kylie, and she was saying, "Like, wouldn't this just be better if you were just if it was rethemed as just like cabin crew, and you were just running around a plane, like giving you know people meals and stuff?" And immediately I was like, "Yeah, now that would just make this better and more thematically coherent and more accessible." Anyway, that was fine. I wouldn't recommend anyone buys Pandemic Rapid Response, though. I didn't have a bad time with it. I just thought it was like maybe probably not worth paying for. What I did have a great time with is something people are going to have to wait for. So this is a game called Rail Pass. This is from Mercury yeah. Games, who people may remember from our review of Container Jumbo Edition. They make interesting games. So <laughs> They make interesting games that are often too big. Yes. So Rail Pass is a small box. I have no idea what the recommended retail price is going to be, but it does have a lot of three-dimensional sort of not pla- of plastic trains, okay? Uh-huh. So this is a game for between two and six players. It's a game about... Trains delivering cargo to where it needs to be. Let's say that uh, I played it with three. I think the sweet spot would be like four or five. But um, you divide the six cities in the game, which are little sheets, in front of uh, between all your players. So if they're playing it with four people, then most people will have one city. A couple of people will have two. Um, these cities also then are covered in cargo cubes that have to be delivered to different colored cities. And two trains, a big one and a short one. The trains also have conductors, which are pegs. So, Matt, let's say you have one city. You Is this ha- like um, the game of life? Uh, yeah, say the peg lives in a vehicle. Yeah, so exactly I like the same putting thing. pegs in vehicles. Yeah, well, you're going to be doing a lot of it, and you're going to be sometimes realising you don't have pegs, We'll get back to this. So, let's say you're just in charge of Red City, Matthew, okay? Okay. You've got two trains. You've got three red engineers, mm-hmm. one of which is in each train. I love I love when I describe this uh, for the people at home. Matt closes his eyes yeah. so he can better visualize again. Getting into a world of trains. So, each of your trains will have one red peg in, and there's also one more red peg in your hotel. You also have a ton of cubes, none of which are red, all of which have to be delivered to different cities. Cool. Now... There are paths between all different cities, mostly in a sort of circular fashion because you're sat around a table, right? So, let's say I'm sat to the left of you and I've got Green City with my green engineers and all my cubes that have to go to other cities. Mm Mm-hmm and then you've got someone else to your right. So immediately, here's what you're gonna do, Matt. You're gonna start filling your trains with cargo that is like coming off the conveyor belt. So let's say, oh, there's a green cube. You're gonna put that onto one of your trains. Mm-hmm. You're then going to physically pick up that plastic train that now has plastic cubes on it and pass it to me. Once a train is lifted off the board and in your hand, it is what's known as riding the rails, in air quotes, okay? <laughs> so the, it, any, anytime anyone picks up a train, the idea is that train is on the move. So, you then have to pass that train to me. I will take it. You also, we're not allowed to pass trains back and forth without us both. You have to say, toot toot. And then when I take the train off you, I have to say, toot toot. That train is now in my hand and in my possession. I want to put it down in my green city and take the cubes off it, right? But Matt, every city starts the game with two trains on it already, so it's full. Mm. So, I then have to pick up one of my trains and put your train in it. And then you have to work out where that train's going to well, go. Well, no, because I what I could do is... Because that train that I've... The green train I've picked up... I can unload the green cubes off you, pick your train back up, say, toot toot, hand that train back to you, and put my train back down in the city. Sure. Okay? What... <laughs> the reason this gets tricky is... Let's start with the fact that that coloured peg, the, the peg that shows a red engineer driving that train, the engineers don't want to get too far away from their friends and family, okay? If an engineer is ever found more than one city away from where they live, <laughs> they instantly quit... They leave the job, and you have to take that peg out. So now you've got a train with no driver sat in a train station somewhere, and the peg goes in the middle. Also, if a cube ever falls off a train because you're holding these things in your hand, and by the way, you can hold two trains, you can have a train in each hand and be trying to move cargo. Can you hold more than that if you think you can? No. So this is cool. Here's what we realized, right? So you can you can only have a hold a train in each hand, each of which have cubes on, but the game doesn't say. And while you've got a train in each hand, you can't, like, unload cargo cubes or swap out engineers. So you can have a train in each hand and you're... You're holding the train between little finger and thumb, and then using your index finger and ring finger to pick up cubes on the player mat uh-huh. without tilting the train so the cubes fall off. Because if a cube ever falls off a train that you're holding, those cubes are considered they've Goal. fallen off the train. Yeah. And they'll never get to yeah, where they are going to go. the rails. Also, if you ever drop a train, it's a train crash, and you lose all the cubes, <laughs> the train and the driver. <laughs> but so... the people like, can I have my train back? <laughs> Well, I what crashed what it. you get is like, let's say you're you uh, you start playing and immediately you send out your two trains. Right, you've then got no trains. If other players don't send trains your way, you start having to say things like, "I need someone's train," and then you get into the, the engineers are what really hold everything back because if you've got, uh, let's say your red train has got a black cube, the black cube has to go three cities away. What players will have to do is, two, two, you pass it to me. I will put it in one of my cities, swap the driver out, pick it back up, two, two, and send it down the line with another driver. That next player will have to do the same thing because engineers can never get too far from their home. Mm -hmm. But what that can mean if players aren't careful is all of your red engineers are in other people's hotels sleeping the night away. Yeah. It's absolutely... Send them back. Yeah, it's, awesome it's it's, it sounds great you know what it's like we play it's a 10 minute game you have a 10 minute timer to deliver as many cubes as possible and then you get a score which has to be of of at least 100 um and that's actually really clean this is boring now but the way it does score is not count up how much cargo you delivered because that would take ages Uh instead you find out which two cities had the least cargo and multiply them together so it's Ah. so immediately it's like you have to do a third as much algebra to figure out your score Perfect. Almost. I got that algebra wrong, actually, in the still. Anyway, yeah, it's just cute. There's also stuff like um, there are little tunnel tokens, like tiny little um, U-shaped tunnels um, that are on the table. So if there's a tunnel between you and one of your players, you have to push the train through the tunnel and go doot doot. You can't just pass it to them. It has to go through a bridge piece or a tunnel, which is like (laughs) a 3D thing. It's, you know, it's usually that sounds like a lot of fun it's great usually with with real-time uh, cooperative games like escape the curse of the temple or zombie 15 or any of the other ones space alert i guess i don't like them because they're well, not that i don't like them i love i love them but they are often quite stressful in a way yeah. that means i don't get them off my shelves very often rail pass is a little bit more like magic maze in that it's it's equal parts thinking and stress yeah because you're doing the puzzle but also trying to do the physical task and you don't get that thing you often get the franticness because you're just gonna you can't be moving really quickly because you're gonna drop all your cubes yeah it's it's kind of a little more leisurely it's equal parts cerebral and physical it's an amazing thing to show people because it's absolutely hilarious but like (laughs) even weird negotiation like you know let's say you send your (laughs) the thing that happened in our game more than once is i was having the white and yellow cities because it's a three-player game i would send my yellow uh Engineer pegs to another city, that player would then accidentally drive them too far and they'd quit, which means it's not like they're penalized. It's just me that doesn't yeah, have any yeah, engineers like, Where's anymore. Where's my person? Where's my brother Oh, they quit. Why? Oh, I sent them to so Scotland So is it just that you find you have like on your thing of like colors that you should not find there? Yeah, it's technically an illegal move and the response to the illegal move. But is, is there like a little card telling you which colors you're not allowed to have where you are or something? No, you have or... to look. So if I send you a train with a red engineer, you have to go, oh, where do they come from? You look at the, okay, table, you look at the table, you see the red city and go, ooh, I can't send them any crap. So how many people can you play this with? Six. It's I was going to say. So you always play with six cities. So if you play a two-player game, you've got three cities each, at which point it's super hard. Yeah. Or I would love to try it with six because... Six it, sounds like it would be ridiculous. That's what we were saying. We, we were laughing just imagining playing it with six. Like, I, I think, I think, Rail Pass is not out yet, and it won't be out for a while, but in terms of a game that's really funny, really thought-provoking it reminds me so much of Magic Maze as it's a game you break out, it takes like 10 minutes and everyone walks away having fun and thinking about it. It's not necessarily a game that you play multiple times in a row. Mm-hmm. So it's it, it falls more towards novelty than true puzzle to me, but I don't think that's necessarily a bad no. thing. I mean, if the, if the price is right, if it's like 30 pounds, dollars, If it's a small box and it's lovely and it's lots of fun. Yeah, yeah, that's a heck of a thing. That sounds amazing. That sounds amazing. Can I ask a simple rules question? Yes. Why do you say toot toot and not choo choo? Is it a mistake? Is it a typo in the manual? Uh, These sort of uh, errors happen a lot in board games. Because I just feel like they should probably rectify that before they get a print. I'm going to really stick my neck out here and say I disagree. I think toot toot is a funnier noise. If people are all saying choo choo, then it's like... It's like in our *Ticket to Ride* review, we had you know, the famous line: "You're right, choo choo baby, choo choo." Toot toot is so dumb. Toot <laughs> toot Yeah, you can't yeah, no, say yeah. it in a toot toot. I think it's also like choo choo could be choo choo, choo choo. Yeah, yeah. choo choo. Yeah, I. You'll come to me. With this train. Oh, I've just, that has reminded me somehow of the best thing that can happen in Rail Pass, which is uh, let's say you're holding a train, you've got a train in one hand, you're looking down at your puzzle, and then the players to your left and right simultaneously go, toot toot, because there's two trains that are waiting to be delivered. You already have a train in your hand, so you can't actually accept both. God, I haven't mentioned that. Yeah, that's the last thing I'll say on Rail Pass is the funny thing of in Magic Maze or other real time games, everyone has their thing, but because of just if, by happenstance players all decide to send their trains to one person or to the same two people those people literally do not have enough hands so there's a really fun thing of some players can just be sat laughing at two players who are struggling to deal with all the trains that have just arrived Heck of a thing, heck of oh, a thing. So it's like that, an expansion with a conductor which comes with a little pad of paper. So whenever you crash a train or lose cargo, you have to go and tell the conductor about it and he has to write you out a, what, like a, a form. to yes. <laughs> oh, thought, you know, a <laughs> Before little... Before you can play. That's not a little... You know, in, <laughs> that's a good idea, you know in Captain Sonar where you have to draw a line around yeah, yeah, the submarine? Yeah, yeah It'd, be like, like, that. It'd be like, what colour is the cargo? Red. Okay, fine. What colour? was it What city? was it going to? Where was, was it going? Yeah, was yeah. It go? yeah. Who was responsible yeah, for the accident? What was the colour of the conductor driving? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just to be like filling the paperwork. I... Oh my gosh, that's that's our game. We've designed it we need to quit, shut up, and sit down and, and just make it. It's it's advanced paperwork simulator uh, 2019. <laughs> uh, let's talk a little bit just about the the reviews we've been working on mm, uh, recently. Yeah. So um, a few weeks ago, uh, I put out a review of finally stupid big dexterity game Crokinole. Cro-kin-ole. And let me tell you... It's no clask. It's... (laughs) Uh, uh, Actually, no... No, Croconol is pretty wonderful. Croconol is a lovely uh, dexterity game about flicking discs. The boards uh, can be found for as cheap as 100 bucks or as expensive as 300 bucks. And you might think that's crazy for a wooden circle that you flick discs on. But if you want to watch me talk for 18 minutes about why it's, for some people, worth the money... You can uh, look for my uh, video review of Crokinole. Yeah, it's a, it's an amazing thing. We played a ton of it, again, when we were at Sommerspell. Mm. Sommerspell, Sommer spelled with a, a Z in Belgium. Uh, we kept playing it every day because uh, you were reviewing it, but it was kind of a secret because it was the third game in Chronicles month. <laughs> yeah. Because <laughs> it's just a stupid joke. So people kept coming here and saying, hey, you sure play a lot of Crokinole? <laughs> we're like, yeah. But I found it to be a lot like pool yeah i was, used you yeah. you mentioned that to me and i used that in the uh, in the video um mentioning that uh, but the the analogy i use is unlike pool uh, in which a table you have to sink time into exactly. pool before you can start sinking balls well Probably- also like it takes up a huge amount of room so yeah. really people think oh it's expensive for a little thing that then takes up space but it's it's the same experience for me of having a pool table um but it's much more affordable and spatially kind but it's no clask <laughs> it's no clask uh, it's also let's I'm, I'm gonna ask you now what's better matt crocodile or your latest video review that went up last week pipeline oh, they're, they're very similar games I know, yeah. so pipeline is a game of oil and producing oil but it's thematically it's not i like. was gonna say couldn't you retheme pipeline as like making pizzas well yeah and if you watch the video you might see some some gags to that degree but um yeah pipeline i think is a fantastic design it's just a wonderful little machiney puzzle to come to grips with it reminds me a lot of food chain magnate in some ways of having a it's less kind of asymmetrical and wild and people going off in different directions but there's very much a degree of hey start the game there's a bunch of different things you can do um everybody's going to get an interesting good start of some type or the other and then you just go do you start a pipeline with the um with the upgrade that lets you do something sorry i was just trying to pass what you said Oh, no. So, basically, the way it works is it's set up in a way so that um, there are upgrades you can get, or there are, like, loans, or this. Basically, the way it works is that there's there might be a first turn that you want to do, but even if you're the fourth player in a four-player game, there's, like, four really good things you can do at the start of the game. Oh, and that will define how you play for... It will define your start, and it might define how you move forward with that, but it's not like oh, they did a thing, now I get the bad option. There are are no bad options. No, that's exactly what Food Chain Magnate does. Like, you might want to be the soft drinks guy, but if someone else takes that bonus, then you can be the first person to make pizza, and I guess Mm -hmm. you're the pizza guy now. Yeah, Yeah. so it's not quite as defined as that. Like, in the end, you you are just all making oil and selling oil. (laughs) But it's like, oh, I might go and get an upgrade. Oh, fine. Okay, well, I'm going to go and get a loan, and I'll take these good contracts, which will make me fast cash easier. Okay, fine. I'll go and eat up all the best government pipes. And okay, fine. Well, I'll go and do this. And like... I'll go to the crude oil place and buy all of the cheap oil straight away. So it means whatever you do, you, you no one has a bad first turn unless you are like really stupid. Uh, <laughs> in which case, it's still very possible, I'm sorry. But then after that, it is one of those brutal economic games of you being like, I need one more, do- if only I had one more dollar. And then suddenly at the very end of the game, you just explode and start making tremendous amounts of money. And the game just shifts gear. But I, I really, really like it. It's a really satisfying puzzle um thematically it really could be anything it doesn't the fact that it's about oil there's like there's no politics in the game whatsoever which is like kind of insane being <laughs> right. there's not even any like elements of like oh, bribing people or whatever or like you know there's an, it's actual, not i mean it's a it's called pipeline but there's yeah. no mechanics to do with like where you run your no, pipeline no, no, no. <laughs> or getting permits or anything you just build pipes uh, and it's basically a nice cross between a complex abstract uh, Pie, tile laying puzzle of trying to make a cool like pipe dream pipe that will go around and be really long and be really efficient and have crossover in interesting ways and slotting things together in a way that feels colorful and exciting. But then that is like the side dish of a uh, an, another complicated evolving economic puzzle. But it's interesting in the fact that there's so much randomization in terms of how the game is set up that it's always just a case of you're playing a game in which you're just. You've got to adapt. You've got to look at it. And it has that... It it reminds me a bit of Food Chain Magnate and a bit of like container, but in a less brutal way of having a game whereby you've got to look at it and go, what's the best thing I can do to make money right now? And it's not as simple as being like, well, it's great to make grey oil or orange oil because... Can we talk for a second about (laughs) the the three flavours of oil? (laughs) Orange, grey and green, blue? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's... Exactly. Exactly. But it's... (laughs) It's oil. You make oil... And you do have to look around the table. And you do actually look at what people are doing. Because if everyone else is doing loads of mad stuff with orange oil, it doesn't matter that it's the most profitable in this current game. It might be worth just doing something else. And it's really fun. It's really satisfying. With three or four, it's a chunkier game. With two, it's faster. It's real fast. And you just make tons of money. I ended a game with like $950. Oh, Oh. I... I saw your Instagram post saying that and I was like, oh my god, Matt's gotten so good because I've only played with four, but you make more money in a two-player game. I think you must, but I don't know. I think also I had a really good game. Like It was one of those things where like, it's, it's again, like Food Chain Magnet it has that rocket boost effect of being like, you're not going to make any money, you're not going to make any money, you're not going to make any money, now you're making so much money. <laughs> and it's like, if you can hit that point uh, four rounds before the end of the game versus two, then the money you make is just insane. It must be tricky to design a board game because like you know, Feast for Odin is another sort of example of that where it's difficult to design a game with enough uh, room that if you're making like $2 a turn and spending that, that's interesting. And if you're making... In the same game, $30 a turn, you still have tough to spend on and it. it doesn't feel like the game gets wobbly. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think, you know, it maybe does wobble, but it's that explosion wobble of being like the game's ending anyway. Yeah, like a rocket taking off. And yeah, it is exactly like that. But also the fact that you have got these upgrade cards, but there aren't that many of them. And they're kind of locked away in a way that means that they are very powerful, very game breaking. And the kind of things where you go, what does that do? And you go, whoa. Oh, the upgrades are nuts. But there's not so many of them that you can't remember what people have. And for a game that really does spill across your table in a bizarre, noodly way, you really can watch what other people are doing and adapt and also i don't know why and i think maybe it's a good thing that it's not really cutthroat but every game i've played maybe it's the kind of people i play with everyone's always very appreciative of what other people are doing like, that's really cool wow you did that that's great and it's very exciting in the fact that it's it's not worker placement in a traditional sense you can't block people from doing things but you know when you can you're watching something you think i need that bit of pipe i need that bit of pipe and you're <laughs> just waiting for your turn so you can buy it and hoping that no one else does it's very exciting. So yeah, it's a, it's a very positive review. It's also a brilliantly bright and colourful and lovely thing to look at. It's The um, game or your review? Uh, pff, the, hopefully the review as well. But no, the game. And uh, it's a very fun, stupid review. It's got lots of... It's, it's very silly. Oh, well, I'm looking forward to that. Yeah. Um, but yeah, check that out. It's a fun game. Pipeline. Uh, and then coming up in a couple days, just two... Two sweet little days, or possibly three, after we release this podcast, will be my review of Too Many Bones. Mm. A game which, uh, we've been joking in the Shadow up and down Slack, in fact, has the correct number of bones. (laughs) This is a role-playing game which, really, I was expecting to be good and was kind of shocked that it's great, basically. A a role-playing game, then? Well, well, only roll in the sense that you're rolling dice. That's my joke, not the game's. Oh, okay. Um, But what you're doing is... um, Lots of games like uh, Descent or Gloomhaven have you doing a big campaign. Too Many Bones is out of the gate pretty interesting because you're going to go kill a villain, and that's going to take between two and four hours, and, wow. and then you're just done. So you start with um, a character who is uh, This is going to sound weird, and hopefully they'll just encourage you to watch the review. Your character is a mouse mat, okay? It, they've used the same printing techniques. It's a mouse mat full of holes in which you can socket dice.
1: I've seen this uh, yeah
0: yeah so as you level up um your character has about 20 different custom dice so you might level up and go okay i'm going to take this dice which is a more powerful defense dice whatever or this dice which is a kind of grenade but all the characters are unique and they all have even within that tons of unique ways to build them and then in battle you decide which of your dice you're going to roll so it's like um imagine that like uh about halfway through the campaign you might have five or six custom dice and you go into combat and then looking down at your dice is kind of like Batman looking down at their utility belt and being like, okay, ooh, I really want to do tons of damage, but I'm worried about this, so I'm going to use this, this, and this dice. Mm. But of course, they're dice. So it's not like you unlock it. Like, I'm thinking about the... um let's say the grenade, right? So the grenade will hit a space and then do a ton of damage, but also do splash damage to all adjacent spaces. So even within these cool skills that you've unlocked, you don't fully have control over the one in six chance the grenade just won't work, mm-hmm. or it might do a bit or loads of damage. And it so- It might hurt you? It might, well, no, but in our game, uh, Chris Pratt sure hurt me a lot. Um, because, <laughs> That's nice. Yeah. Uh, but no, it's just, it's colorful, it's inventive. And one of the uh, side points I have in my review is that it made me realize, because you know how much I can play. About um, publishers putting fantasy themes on games, uh-huh. uh huh. So they just put an orc on it, it's like it's it's like wallpaper, I it's boring. And you to put an orc on it, uh, but but Too Many Bones made me realize no, I love fantasy, I just don't love it when developers kind of like thoughtlessly use fantasy tropes. Too Many Bones is just this new world, you all play these weird like gremlin things that have, like, colour and personality, and the Mm -hmm. world has humour, and I loved inhabiting the fantasy world of Too Many Bones. Yeah, Yeah, well, I found the same thing with Gloomhaven. Exactly. It's like, if it's interesting, and it's different, and it's not just like, you are a white human male in a land of interesting uh, races of other things that are different, but sometimes just humans with bigger ears. (laughs) It's, it's, yeah, uh, the fact out of the gate that it's like, that, I mean, Too Many Bones... Exactly the same as Gloomhaven, actually. There is no option to be a normal human. It's like the question you asked in Too Many Bones is, do you want to be this weird gremlin with grenades? And your friend might be like, no. And you go, okay... Do you want to be this weird gremlin with anger management <laughs> issues? <laughs> no? Do you want to be this weird gremlin whose weapon is a big shield and nothing else? you <sighs> like, only anything isn't gremlins absolutely not. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. If you buy one of the expansions there's a robot but like... Well I like that stuff and actually like, it's it's uh, a video game recommendation for something I've been playing an awful lot of recently and it's reminded me that video games can be interesting and fascinating and different and worth your time but I've been playing a game called Outer Wilds and oh, again yeah. it's a game of exploring space but again it's like a game of exploring space and finding weird alien things but the character you play is a weird alien and you're from a planet of weird aliens because it's like no they don't look like humans they've got loads of eyes and they're just weird yep. and it's like cool good I mean yeah that's the, the number one thing about exploration games right is that if if, you, if your player is going to be exploring something then make what is out there worth exploring yeah you know? and also why do you have to be boring why can't you be weird everyone should be weird I couldn't agree more Ooh. put your hand in Ooh. my mailbag me a letter it's time once again for me to Delve my hand into the mailbag to find the specific. Because the thing is, we, we know what question we're going to ask. So I've got to find the actual. Oh no, that's a nightmare. No, because there's so many, so many in here. Why didn't you put it back in after we found it? Well, I knew you had to reach into the mailbag because that's tradition. But... I know. It's We've got the jingle. All right, I, I found it. I hey! Found it. Reach into the thing to find the specific question. Uh, This is from Stefan from Nuremberg, Germany. Thanks, Stefan. Uh, And thanks for sending in a paper letter as well. Stefan writes, Hi there. If you could play a board game or card game with its designer and they would talk you through its design process while playing it, kind of like an audio commentary, which game would you choose and why? Love the show. Thanks, Stefan. Thanks, Stefan. That's a a genuinely great question in a sea of questions that often are the same question asked slightly different ways. (laughs) Um, this is a fascinating one as well because I've had a few different angles of this. You think, well, what do you want to do? Do you want to do? You want to go for something that's like an, a fascinating, sprawling thing? Like my mind immediately jumps to something like Gloomhaven, something newly yeah. and strange. But then I've met Isaac, and he's lovely, but. But Isaac, in fact, Isaac uh, Isaac Childress is, is yes. doing a talk at Shucks uh, he is. about Gloomhaven. Well, we, we haven't confirmed that yet. We're okay. hoping that he's going to do that, but <laughs> Isaac is coming. Put your wishes out into the world, Matthew. Yeah, I really, really want him to do that. I really want him to do a talk about Gloomhaven. So in a way, it's like, this is a question that's like, well, I hope that we can actually get to have him Have him actually do that. And need yeah. to ask him some questions, and I'll play some more Gloomhaven over the summer to get get, get back into it. And, you know, right. lovely. But I, I, I'm thinking, like, really... If I'm going to be playing something and having somebody talking to me about the game a lot whilst I'm playing it, do I want somebody terrifyingly sharp and insightful? Or do I want someone bombastic and fun? Because I'm fundamentally uh, a child that wants <laughs> oh, to be... You mean you want to be entertained? <laughs> I want to be entertained. So do I want to sit there? And I can't decide. And like, it's a real toss-up. It's like, do I want to... Because part of me thinks maybe I just want to have a game described to me and talk to me about by, by Alan Gerding or Asker, or like, just because oh. like, I know that they will like tell me about the process and I'll just be enwrapped the whole time. Like, I could listen to Alan Gerding talking about anything for, for ages. Yeah, no, he is great. I actually, I think that's a very logical crossroads to have found yourself at for me. I was I thought about Vlada Fatel, my favorite designer, but then I thought no, I kind of probably the reason Vlada resonates so much with me is I kind of get it, like yeah, when when he designs things, I get why he's done the thing he does. So I was I was thought that's not going to be as informative. Instead, I thought Dr. Ranek Nitzia. Whose designs are so alien to me that like that's that when we get in the 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 where math meets game design in a way that I feel completely out of my depth, I choose Rainer Knizia explaining Tigris and Euphrates to me. Yeah, and like why does this work? Why is this fun? Why like you know because that's his masterpiece, right? Yeah, and I feel like also it's a bit of a cheat, but I, I definitely would listen to uh, Jeff Engelston just talking about his games. Oh, but that's because yeah, Jeff because. Uh, the science behind it is just fascinating. We've recommended Jeff Engelstein's book, Game Tech, before. That's, That's kind of cheating, because it's like, I just like listening I mean, just, to I'll him. buy you a copy of Game Tech. It's great. That's spelt one word, Game, T-E-K. game Tech. Game Tech. Game Tech. Da-da-da-da-da. So, yeah. Uh, also, I'd like to listen to the inventor of Snap. Card game Snap. I would have a great time listening to the inventor of Twister talking about, like, <laughs> talking about the lawsuits. Well, talking about, like, did I wonder if the adventure of Twister knew their game would, was gonna be, be, would be part of a sexual revolution, you know? That's a really good question. Because the answer is probably no. I mean, it's <laughs> like, hard to say, isn't it? It, it, it could have just been somebody incredibly straight than nerdy going, of course, it's a physically difficult task. <laughs> and then just watching yeah. it and somebody exec going, we're going to make so much money. <laughs> <laughs> now, that's a good question. I would love to know if, if Twister was, was designed to. Be naughty. Uh, I mean, if it's not, that's interesting to talk to the designer. And if it is, that's interesting and skeevy. So, yeah. Yeah, that, there's all sorts of things like that. I mean, like, I'd love to know a lot of the stories of, of lots of games, like, you know, especially actually, I think when you go back to childhood games like Cluedo and Mousetrap, it's like, did people, like, were they just supposed to be a bit gimmicky? Like, you know, like, yeah. where did the, because you can imagine, like, because you've heard conversations about how these things happen, you can imagine, like, <sighs> something like cluedo with these little did cluedo have physical little props as well that went in the rooms oh yeah what, it had, didn't it had bars. a little metal wrench but little, yeah but so hang on what what were those for because they weren't your player pieces. they sat on the rooms I think. Oh, yeah, because you randomised where the different murder weapons were found. Yeah. Or something. So and it's then, like, yeah. you can kind of see that maybe that could have happened just because somebody went, well, people like the little metal hat and the metal dog in Monopoly. What game can we do little metal bits for? Oh, this came up just recently because I found out that the race car is the most popular playing piece in Monopoly. Which is interesting. What? It's the dog in the hat? No. It, the dog in the hat? Yeah, you, you take both straight away. You say, I'm playing as First the off, dog that's in a, the hat. That's a house rule. Second off. That's genius. Yeah. Uh but no, the race car's the most popular, but it's also the only one that makes thematic sense. Yeah. So is the race car popular because it's a cool car from the twenties? Because you're driving around. Or is it popular because town. it's the uh, yeah, because you're in a car driving around parking on hotels Rather and walking actually walking a dog or walking or a hat. Being a hat. Or being a hat. I, I mean, wanna know who's cho- inside of it. I this came up <laughs> with uh me and my friend recently, and I was saying, God, who chooses to be the iron? And then I realized as an adult, I would quite like to be the iron. The iron's quite satisfying to move around. Yeah, because it's got... the as a, as a piece of... As an actual playing piece, it's got the nice... Yeah. It's got a hole in it. Like, yeah, I'm waiting for the, the ironing uh, board game where you, you can, yeah, move irons around. But yeah, you've got to wonder if... like Because those playing pieces make absolutely no sense. Did the original... Like, did whichever installment of Monopoly first include those? Did it include them because, like, someone had a job lot on a thousand tiny metal you know, hats? I just think those stories are fascinating. There's, It's not a games thing, but there was a, a thing to do with He-Man, I think, recently? Oh! With the, the, the tiger. The tiger? Yeah, this, this went viral on Twitter, yeah. Yeah, and it was just basically them talking about how they were, like, just... They had to come up with a toy that could be... Something that He-Man would ride, yeah and they d- realized that the the tooling costs for making new 3D shapes was going to be too expensive. So they just found a tool they already had, which was for a tiger, and <laughs> yeah. and like his. his colleague said we can't just do this we can't just use this tiger and was like oh i'm I'm gonna make it so he doesn't want to use it so he just basically mocked up this tiger that was three times the size in like ridiculous like green and blue being like he's gonna come in and be like that's stupid and he's like great done (laughs) that's (laughs) it and so it's like the only reason that that exists is because they didn't have the money to make a new thing so they just scaled up a tiger that he could sit on and so i kind of in a way like I, as much as I would like to pick the brains of modern designers, um, I think I'm more interested in stories of the old stuff where it's like things that came about because people either didn't care or didn't have the money. And I think those are more fascinating. I've been like seeing what culturally stuck and what seems important now that at the time just wasn't. Yeah, yeah, no, that's that's a great answer. Uh, if you've got a great question, you want to, uh, you know, like obviously, mailbag full of a lot of paper questions, but some people choose yeah. to send us questions via email. Yeah. You can do that at contact at shutupandsitdown.com. And yeah. that goes straight to me. Yeah. And just between, you know, you and uh, us, uh, there's a weird kind of magical, maybe a curse on the mailbag in which sometimes emails actually find their way into the bag. Yes. As ...pieces of paper. I didn't realise we were going to share that particular phenomenon on the podcast, but yeah, that... Well, that I kind happen. of felt like we, we've we been hiding this this magical secret for for a while... ...and the fact that you're encouraging people to send emails... ...whilst we're only ever bringing questions out of a physical paper bag. It's unusual. I'm not going to... I gonna... felt like maybe we had to let people know that, otherwise they <laughs> might stop sending us emails. I mean, as long as we don't talk about some of the other attributes of the mailbag... ...like the, uh, the sort of s- the slick rim that kind of keeps itself wet... Uh, mm-hmm. Or the way that it seems—it seems deeper on the inside than it is on the outside. Yeah, but if no. we don't, if we don't just sort of, we don't tell them about that. We just tell them about the fact that it's it's magical and, and emails end okay, up. Okay, and it. we remove this bit from the podcast. Sure. Okay, great, cool. Uh, thank you very much for listening to the Shut Up and Sit Down podcast. This has been a podcast all about board games. Uh, what do we usually say at the end of the podcast? Thank you very, very yep. much to Mr. Steve Davitt for his uh, lovely saxophone stylings, and also thank you very much to you. Because without you, this podcast wouldn't exist. Mm. And also, actually, while I remember, a thank you uh, to Tom Brewster, who was a did a very short internship with us for a couple of weeks. He came and sat with me in London and did some stuff. And you may have seen him appearing in the Pipeline Review. He was very funny. Very talented, and uh, I'm very disappointed in myself. I only got him in for a couple of weeks as an intern, but I'm going to keep keeping in touch with him, and you may see him again in the future because he's he's quite a lovely lad. There's a fair few talented people in the UK there who uh, are our audience, are at gonna, least four, going to be enjoying, and we've found at least two of them. Yeah, right. Uh, lovely stuff. Uh, we will be back in another about a month with some more board games that we think are good or bad. Or bad. Goodbye, Bye. everybody. Bye.